Some of you may be aware of this. On Tuesday, I believe it was, there was a science fiction writer named Patrick Tomlinson who ignited a Twitter firestorm uh, by attacking the pro-life position via a question uh, which posed a hypothetical scenario uh, in which a person who believes that, that life begins at conception was forced to make a choice between rescuing a five-year-old child or 1,000 embryos from a burning building. So he sets up the scenario and says, here's the foolproof question that I've never got an honest answer from someone who claims that life begins at conception. If they walk into, if they're in this building and it catches on fire and they go into the room, a five-year-old child's in that corner and there's a 1,000 embryos in this corner they, they, won't, they won't admit that if they choose the child, they're saying that his life is more important than the thousand lives. Because normally if you had a choice between saving one person or a thousand lives, you'd save a thousand lives, right? And so he's saying because they don't save the thousand lives, they actually don't really believe that life begins at conception, right? And so, so he, he throws it out there in this, you know, this uh, Twitter thread, and then it just, you know, as Twitter is prone to do, it just, you know, it's like a massive uh, uh, cyberspace crash. Uh, in fact, I couldn't, I couldn't even bring myself to watch it very long. Uh, two types of responses, though, seem to dominate right away. On one hand, congratulations to Patrick for exposing the hypocrisy of the anti-choice, and then you could sort of fill in what they did, you know, Neanderthals, uh, Nazis, whatever you want to call them, because the only people who tell people they can't kill a baby must believe that. So you've exposed their hypocrisy, right? That was one side of it, which was probably expected that that, you know, that, that was going to happen. All the people who, who agreed with him uh, were gleefully rejoicing at, at, at the train wreck that was unfolding. The other one, which was more disappointing to me, was actually the fact the people who came on ostensibly to defend the pro-life position, but did so via personal attacks on Patrick, uh, versus, filled with insults and or wishes that someone had aborted them. Right? I mean, that, 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 that this whole, there was a whole uh, segment of people whose response to his arrogance, because he actually did, he launched it in an arrogant way. I mean, obviously when you say, I've never had anybody honestly answer me, you're essentially saying, they didn't give me the answer I wanted. Right? So, so he had a stance of arrogance, and they responded to it with invective, an insult, and attack, right? It was actually uh, one of those providential things in which it was the perfect illustration of the passage that we're going to look at, right? That, that, that what do you do when you encounter a foolish person making a foolish argument? How do you handle that? Because the reality of it is you and I are going to face this more and more. We are going to be confronted by people 
who have embraced foolishness with a gusto that causes them inside of their bubble to look at what we call wisdom and hate it and mock it and make foolish arguments against it. So how do we deal with that? I think it's probably a familiar familiar text, but look at Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So here's, here's two Proverbs that sit right next to each other and lay upon us a biblical responsibility to live wisely. And often we look at them and go, huh? Answer not? Answer? Which do I do? What, what, what do I do here? And I think we need to think about the text in a way that can help us as we prepare to engage more and more with the expressions of foolishness that are related to God and His Word, right? So if you want to just express a generally foolish idea, opposition to like the New York Yankees or the Red Wings, you know, then I don't really care, right? I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to get engaged in it. But you begin to say something that actually is attacking God and His Word, how do we handle that? How do we deal with that? All right? Now, 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 some have argued that these two proverbs contradict each other. Right? That, that essentially they, they are doing a bit of doublespeak for us. And, and I think what that does is fail to take into consideration the nature of the text in at least two ways. One, that it's inspired. Uh, so, so it is from God and therefore does not contradict itself by virtue of the fact that his word is truth. Right? But also the nature of Proverbs, right? That what they're doing at that point is failing to understand the kind of literature it is, which is actually not laying out things in ironclad imperative or promise kind of thing, but teaching us principles that we need to apply. And I think the, as you look into the text, you can see that that's exactly what's going on. And I will grant that some actually have just come to these two verses and said, basically all it's saying is that you need to get wise enough to tell the difference between when you shouldn't and when you should. I mean, that's that's probably the simplest answer and, and a common way in which people answer the tension between these. And, and that certainly, I think, is part of it. But I don't think it's the main part of it, the, the actual focus of it. I think, really, what, where the, if I could put it this way, hopefully it's not uh, too casual to say this, but where, where the action is in these two verses is actually in the second part of the verse, right? We tend to focus on the first part. Do not answer and answer. But the weight and point of the Proverbs is actually in the second part of the verses, which are different from each other as to the explanation, right? It says, 
at the end of verse 4, or you will also be like him, and at the end of verse 5, that he not be wise in his own, own eyes. So, so there's actually information in each proverb that gives you some understanding as to the point of them, stated the way they are. And I think, I think if we recognize that, then there's, there's really helpful instruction for us. But before we look specifically at that, let me just sort of lay some backdrop, all right? Context and backdrop, uh, because I think it's important. I mean, obviously, when we look at it and says fool in verse 4 and 5, we should ask ourselves, who is the fool? And, and I think if we read it in the context of Proverbs, we would know that that's a spiritual description, not a reason to mock or ridicule the person. I just, I mean, think about that, right? Because we tend to use fool like, what a fool. And it's immediately sort of a, a dismissal kind of a thing. We, we treat it as this person's not worthy of, of, you know, our attention kind of a thing. And inside the book of Proverbs, it's actually one of the characters that are presented on the, if I could put it this way, on the opposite side of the aisle from wisdom. Right? You've got the simpleton or naive person. You've got the scorner. And probably between them, you've got the fool. Right? Those three are in relationship to wisdom. Obviously, you have sluggards and you have gossips. You have all kinds of characters presented in the book of Proverbs. But, but those three in chapter one show up as ultimately coming under the judgment of God. That is, they were, they were deliberately a simpleton. They were a fool, they were a scorner or mocker. So it's a, it's a spiritual description about someone who doesn't fear the Lord. And I say that because of the way chapter 1 unfolds, right? You, you know verse 7, I'm sure. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Does anyone know what the second part of that verse is? Fools hate wisdom and instruction. Right? So, fear of the Lord, fool, set opposed to each other. Outcome of fear of the Lord's wisdom, fools hate that. That's the description of them. And then if you go down a little bit later in the chapter, it actually talks about that, that the, the fool does not want wisdom instruction, and then it goes several verses later, that's verse 22, 29, it says, you did not choose the fear of the Lord. Right? So, so what's at stake with the fool is a spiritual condition that is marked by the absence of the fear of the Lord. I mean, that's, that's foolishness. In fact, chapter 18, verse 2 says, he has no delight in understanding and wisdom, but a great desire to be heard. Chapter 12, verse 15 says he won't listen to correction. And chapter 10, verse 23 says he does pleasure, takes pleasure in doing wickedness. So, and I think that's important because whatever we're told here, do not answer or answer, is in regard to a specific kind of person, right? Do not answer a fool or answer a fool. So, so the reality of it is we're looking at a person that could be described as, uh, having chosen not to fear the Lord, a person who isn't interested in wisdom and understanding, in fact, only is really interested in hearing himself talk, is not responsive to correction, actually enjoys doing wickedness. 
Okay, that's, that's the fool that he's talking about. And I think that means that we should again set it in the context of what other things Proverbs says about how we relate to fools, right? We must guard against their corrupting companionship. 13.20 would say, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. 14.7 says, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern the words of knowledge. So, so if we're if we're understanding what we're going to see in 26, 4, and 5 in light of those things, then, then we're really talking about a context in which this isn't, uh, this isn't like buddy buddy kind of interaction, right? It's because we're, we're not supposed to be a companion of fools. And, and in fact, we're really being called to much more of a, a sort of a strategic, surgical airstrike of truth here, if anything, because he's warning us about spending too much time in the presence of a fool. So, so we, have to, we, have to, we have to take that kind of thing into consideration as well and recognize the danger in Proverbs of interacting with a fool. Right? I mean, here's a, a picturesque, uh, description, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. I mean, I, I've not actually bumped into a bear robbed of her cubs, but I can imagine that's really not an attractive event. And he says, you're better off there than, than encountering the fool. Do not speak in the hearing of the fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. When a wise man has a controversy with a fool, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. Right Now, obviously we're having to harmonize all these texts, and, and I don't think we can take any of them means so never talk to a fool, never have any interaction with a fool, but I think it would be all warning us about the reality of we are stepping into an environment that may invite uh, a measure of trouble and discomfort to us. So we should be doing it uh, carefully and wisely. All right, so now let's look at, let's look at the text. Verse 4, I think, is, is the first principle that we have to think about. And here's what I would say, and I, I, think, I think the text helps us understand that, is basically uh, the first principle is don't imitate their foolishness. Don't imitate their foolishness. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Okay, and the key here is the answer is according to his folly. That is, your answer is like his folly. If you answer like his folly, you'll become like him. That is, you'll, if, if I could put it this way, if you reply to a fool in a foolish way, you become a fool. So, so make certain that you don't get sucked into adopting the same methods and tactics as the fool. And I think the key is that according to his folly. And, and, and we're motivated not to do it because we don't want to become a fool in the process. So, so go back to the little Twitter kerfluffle, right? I, and I don't know the spiritual condition of the people who are in this category I talked about who began to reply to this man 
according to his foolishness. Right? That is in the same way that he had expressed his foolishness. He had come on arrogantly, set up actually a false dilemma, and then would uh, berate anybody that didn't walk into his trap. Right? I mean, so like if I, if I tweet out to you personally and say, have you stopped beating your wife yet? You have two options. Yes, no. And you go, well, I never beat my wife. You're not being honest. You didn't choose A or B. Right? I mean, so he's doing something that's, that's the fallacy of a false dilemma. I mean, it's, it's not, it's like, can God create a stone so big he can't lift it? Right? It's a false argument. But they, they wade right in and start to use the exact same foolishness. Well, if you went into a room and there was a five-year-old or a thousand liberals, which one would you rescue? You know, I mean, and they start throwing all this, this stuff back at him that is the exact same thing that he did. And you know what this text is saying? They became fools. Right? They actually became like the fool because they adopted the same methods and tactics and mindset as the fool. They, they went right down to his level. I mean, is it possible to have the fool pull us down to his level like that? I think, obviously, that's what the, the text is saying. And, and we probably have all seen it. Perhaps we've experienced it, right? I mean, perhaps when, we, when I start to paint out that scenario, you could think of times in which you got so frustrated or angry about what someone was doing that you, you just climbed right down in the mud with them. And basically acted like the fool. And that's what he's saying we, we cannot do. In fact, I think if we understand the character of the fool in Proverbs, it can help us understand how we might do that, right? The fool is in love with the sound of his own voice. And, and sometimes we get pulled into that in the same way so that our answer to the foolishness is just like the babbling fool. That's what's described in, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8 and 10. Or that we're not really pursuing understanding anymore. We're only making sure they get a piece of our mind. That's what Proverbs 18.2 would talk about. In fact, Proverbs 17 says, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. So you know what? Probably the wisest answer for most people in the face of that kind of an argument is keep your keep your mouths closed, right? It is is basically don't don't get sucked into a war of words that are only going to generate heat and very little light and end up drawing the attention to ourselves rather than exposing the foolishness. I think another characteristic of the fool in Proverbs that can fit into this, that is, it's how we get dragged down into it, is when we begin to rant and rage rather than carefully communicate and constructively do so, right? Proverbs says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. He was slow to anger, has great understanding. 
but he who is quick-tempered exalts his folly. That's chapter 14. A fool's anger is known at once, Proverbs 12, 16. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. So, so here's what you can sort of put it on the, the pulse of your wisdom to folly and say, is my response to his foolishness being driven by my temper? Right? Am I just ticked off that he did this foolish argument? Because if I'm moving from that angle, then it's a good possibility that I'm going to go right down to his level. I'm, I'm, I'm operating by his standard at that point, and it's a dangerous thing. Sometimes it's because we go past answering the argument and run deeper and deeper into conflict and strife. Proverbs 18.6 says, A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Proverbs 23 says, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Right? So one of the things you'd have to be looking at is, is this person just looking for a fight? And, and is what I want to do is actually just get into the fight. Which some of you, that may never be a temptation. Some of us like to debate. Right? But then it moves from, like, debate to it's, it's, it's actually I want to uh, engage with a kind of vindictiveness and strife that would be out of keeping with what I'm supposed to do in the pursuit of obedience and wisdom. What about if we start to use dishonest words or destructive words, right? 19.1 says, Better is a poor man who walks as an integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. That perverse is twisted because it's set up against integrity, right? So we tend to think perverse as sexually impure, which certainly it is, but I think, the, I think the comparison in that proverb is between integrity and twistedness. So if all of a sudden we find ourselves encountering the folly of a fool and we go for the win in a way that lacks integrity, we've just dropped down to his foolishness. Because we're not actually after wisdom. We're not after righteousness. We're after winning. And when we're only after winning the argument, we want to be right rather than necessarily pursue right, then we're actually showing the same kind of heart that the fool has. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, right? So, so if all of a sudden we turn into a person who's just explosive or... Um, uh, showing a kind of sinful disregard for the person, then we, we just dropped into the fool category. We just dropped into it. If we are beyond correction in the midst of it, Proverbs would warn us about being a fool. The, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool delights in understanding, but only in, not in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So, so here's another way in which this proverb we could test ourselves, right? So, so I begin to answer his folly, and as I move into it, 
one of two things could happen. He actually might say something that's right, because even fools can be right occasionally, and I refuse to be corrected, because I'm not going to give any ground. And at that point, I've lost sight of the truth, right? Now I'm actually worried about my reputation, and I'm not willing to take correction. Or, and this is probably a good, good reminder for us as, uh, if we're shepherds, someone godly and wise comes along and says, hey, I think maybe you should have been a little more careful there. You know, I'm not sure what you said was the right thing to do. If all of a sudden we turn our guns from that person to the person who's trying to help us, then what we've done is we've gone down to the level of the fool. Right? Because we're not open to correction to have somebody say, hey, I think you may, you may need to think about what you just did there. Then we went from being the fool's corrector to being the fool's companion, I think. So, so he's really after us not becoming like the fool by adopting his foolishness. So, Again, Proverbs says a bunch of them. You probably know a lot of this, right? So that means we should listen first. Proverbs 18, 13, right? He that answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame. So, so the burden is on us if we're pursuing wisdom is to make certain that we've understood before we respond. And in fact, not just that we've listened first, that is we understand before we speak, but we need to listen fully. Proverbs 18.17 says, the first to plead his case seems right till another comes along to examine him. I mean, how many times have you seen people jump to a conclusion based on the first thing they heard? And they march out to battle. And then all of a sudden it becomes clear that they actually didn't have it right. So, So don't be quick to speak Right? Speak carefully. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the righteous study how to answer. Right? So instead of encountering that, and we're hearing all, I mean, so I said Twitter, but you got stuff on Facebook. I mean, there, there are times when I, I really think I almost have to like get rid of my keyboard. Because it's like, somebody needs to say something about that foolishness. But you know what? If you don't think carefully about it, all you do is just, you just, boosh, and all it does is just throw gas on the fire. I mean, I, only God knows this, right? But I wonder how many church splits or, you know, Baptist church plants because of conflict happened because people didn't listen first, didn't listen fully, and didn't speak carefully. And what could have been a problem turned into a gigantic conflict. Because instead of, and it may have been legitimate that there was a fool who was promoting some folly, and, and, and it may have been legitimately needing to be addressed, but instead of addressing it legitimately, they dropped to the level of the fool. And, and you know what Ecclesiastes says, right? I mean, this is still stuck in my brain in the King James, so I'm just going to say it that way. And it's actually, it actually sounds really cool that way. Like a fly in the ointment of the apothecary. 
so is a little folly in him that is in reputation for wisdom. So it's like, drop a dead fly in your perfume or your pharmaceutical you know, medicine. That dead fly is like a little folly in people who are supposed to have a reputation of wisdom. Because it doesn't take more than a couple really foolish tweets or Facebook comments or snide shots at somebody from the pulpit for you to go from being a person who's wise to becoming like the fool. That's what this text is warning us about. That you can drop fast if you drop to the level of that person. And so we need to realize that we need to listen first, fully speak carefully. I think speak purposefully. That is, try to state the point, solve the problem. Proverbs 16, 23 and 24 says, The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I mean, think about that. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Right? So if your mouth is running and it hasn't had a wise heart instruct it, it's going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble. And I would say, and this is probably, this is all non-pulpit opportunities, right? Speak briefly. Right? Say, say what needs to be said and then move on. Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his words is wise. 1727, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So, so I would suggest that when we're talking about not dropping to the level of the fool's foolishness, it means we don't adopt foolish characteristics. We, in fact, embrace wise principles of how we would communicate with them. Right? We, we actually are thinking not so much about uh, w- what we need to do to that person to correct them. We want to get to that, but we're first thinking, okay, how do I deal with this in a way that is according to wisdom rather than foolishness? Because just because they were a fool doesn't give you right to be one. Right? You don't double down on the problem. And so, so Solomon warns us about that. All right, let's go to the second principle, verse 5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. And I'm reading from New American Standard, and I think they capture it uh, correctly in that regard. So what the principle here is, if I could state it this way, don't let their foolishness stand. Right? Don't let their foolishness stand. I think the key here is that he not be wise in his own eyes. Right? So, so the fool has expressed some foolishness. And that foolishness needs to be addressed so that he's not wise in his own eyes. He doesn't think, my foolishness is in fact wisdom. Right? So... In between, 
the foolishness expressed by this science fiction writer who thinks he found the way to expose the hypocrisy of pro-life people and the people who actually decided to climb down into the gutter with him and go at it. There is a way of answering that addresses his foolishness so that it's not left standing there parading as wisdom. Right? Because that's the point. So that he will not be wise in his own eyes. He won't be able to go, see, nobody can answer me. This is self-evident that I'm right. I am the person, after decades of battles between pro-choice and pro-life people, who has found the silver bullet that will shut their mouths. Right? So that's, he's wise in his own eyes. And there is a way of answering him that, that goes after that problem. And that is to direct it toward his foolishness rather than toward the fool. Right? Because look at the text. It says, answer the fool as his folly deserves. Right? That he not be wise in his own eyes. And the reason we want to be careful about that is because we don't want to see that person or others influenced by him or her make progress farther down the path away from God. Because here's, and again, Proverbs is using picturesque language for us, so I think we're supposed to just take it as it presents itself to us. But look down to verse 12 in the same chapter, right? Because this is, I think, a good companion verse to think about. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. I mean, think about that in light of verse 5. You need to answer the fool as his folly deserves so that he will not be wise in his own eyes. Well, Solomon, why would we be worried about that? And here's verse 12. You see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. There's a stop that's farther away than fool. A person who's wise in his own eyes. And so you're encountering a fool right now, and he's set for something that's foolish, and you need to address that foolishness so that this fool doesn't move actually past his present foolishness to a place where he's wise in his own eyes because then there's less hope for him than if he were still a fool just. Right? That's, that's, that's what the text is, is arguing for us. Uh, Bruce Walkie says this in his commentary, the wise do not silently accept and tolerate the folly and thereby confirm fools in it. Right? Because if we just, in the face of every expression of foolishness, if we just simply let it go, we actually can be confirming them in their folly. They've become wise in their own eyes. And, and so what we're doing there at that point is actually something that is, I would say, unfaithful to God and His wisdom but also is unloving toward the person who's standing on a foolishness that's going to destroy him, push him farther away 
from, from wisdom in that regard. And that's the point of it. I think, again, Walke says the fool arrogantly replaces the Lord's heavenly wisdom with his own. That's what it means to be wise in your own eyes. I know what is wise, right, good, not God. And that's why it needs to be dealt with, because it actually is something that, that is contrary to God's truth, and so it's confronted. So the foolishness of his arguments should be exposed so that his confidence in his own thoughts might be undermined. This would apply, I think, uh, to those who are also listening to the confrontation. Right? I mean, I don't think I have a perfect record on this at all in any way. Uh, but, but most often, the times that I would actually step into, like, like this guy on Tuesday, wasn't even going to come close to it. Because there was no, I don't think there was very, uh, uh, any connection to my shepherding responsibilities. Right? If all of a sudden I'd looked on Facebook, and loads of people in our congregation know this person, and that argument has been laid out there, then I'm going to feel pastoral responsibility to have to step in and address that foolishness. Because I don't want that person to be wise in their own eyes, but I also don't want a bunch of other people to start to think, well, hey, no one's, no one's saying anything. He must be right. I mean, he must have an you know, incontrovertible argument here. So at some point, for the sake of that person or for other people, we have to engage with foolishness in a way that exposes its foolishness. And that's really the key, right? Because it's as his folly deserves. As his folly deserves. In fact, we have some New Testament evidences of people doing that, right? I mean, read Matthew 23. And Jesus going after the scribes and Pharisees and at, at one point calling them foolish, blind guides. Or you have the Apostle Paul confronting the Galatians and saying in chapter 3, what? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right. So I think we all have a high enough Christology that we don't think that Jesus was violating Matthew, or Proverbs 26 when he engaged the foolishness of the scribes and Pharisees to show them what was wrong with it? Because he didn't want them to be wise in their own eyes, and he didn't want, because he's actually at the beginning of Matthew 23, talking about people who need to not follow them. Right? So he's confronting their foolishness, not just for their sake, but also for the sake of people who might be influenced by it. So we do have to, at times, engage it. I mean, we might say, I mean, but, but if you look at what Proverbs says, the fool has no heart for wisdom, right? I mean, so is this, I mean, we use a language, we, we use a description in our, our language, right? That's a fool's errand. <laughs> I mean, are we basically being told here, hey, you gotta go for it, but really, I mean, a fool's not gonna listen, because you could, like, put him in a mortal and grind, mortar and ground, ground him up, and it's not gonna do anything. You know, you could, you could 
whip him with lashes and it's not going to do anything. So, I mean, yeah, go for it, but it's not going to happen. Right? So are we just being told here to engage in something that, that is actually a worthless endeavor? I, w- I would think we need to think a little more carefully about it than that, right? I mean, it's certainly true for an unbeliever, we can say he has no heart for wisdom. But notice the distinction that the text makes, right? Answer a fool according to his as his foolishness deserves. So, so the direction that this text sends us to is toward the foolishness, not really toward the fool. Right? You're not on a mission thinking that you're going to convert the fool, if I could put it that way, because you're not, that's not really what it tells us to do. It says answer the foolishness. That foolishness needs to be addressed. So, so you're not all of a sudden thinking, well, hey, if I answer him, the fool's all of a sudden going to become a person who's receptive to truth. The focus is on his folly or his foolishness because it deserves a response. In a sense, if I could put it this way, I don't think it's directly about converting the fool as it is kicking the props out from under his foolish thoughts. He... The text is telling us to do this so he's not wise in his own eyes. So we're supposed to take the props out from underneath the thing that he might be standing on and thinking, look how wise I am. So, so we're, we're supposed to answer that folly in a way that shows that it in fact is folly. Okay, And I think, I think as well we're protected if we remember what... Uh, what what Avodi talked about this morning, right? It's biblical issues and biblical answers we're talking about. Okay, it's not that we chase down. I mean, I've said I've said this before. I think probably I've said it in this conference. I mean, sometimes people say they're, you know, the Bible has the answer for every question that man can come up with, and and I think that's not true because men come up with really stupid questions. I mean, the Bible actually answers the questions that God thinks matter. And, and sometimes what we could say, well, yes, the Bible has an answer for it. That's a non-question. Right? It, it dismisses it. It doesn't, we don't have to go to the Bible and try and answer if there's life on Mars or all this other stuff that people might want to throw up in our face. We're, we're limited to the, the defense of a biblical worldview, not any kind of crazy idea. That said, though, I think we need to remind ourselves of, if I could put it this way, the mis- miraculous, somewhat mysterious, if I can use that carefully way, God works to transform fools into wise people. When I say mysterious... I'm thinking of like, like the, the way the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith talks about regeneration. Right? That God accomplishes this purpose through His Word in a way that we really can't see. How do you have someone who is blind all of a sudden see? How do you have someone who's dead come to life? especially when that person is described as the natural man 
who does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them because he considers them foolish. I mean, it's exactly what Paul talks about when we preach the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? He says, for the preaching of the cross is to the Jew a stumbling block and to the Greek it's foolishness. Right? So you're preaching this to people and, and the Jewish people are offended by it. The Greeks think it's moronic. And then it says, but those who are the called, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. Same message. There's no change in the message at all. That, in fact, that's Paul's point. Just because they're offended by it or they think it's foolish, you don't change the message because the thing that God uses to pull them out of their fallen condition, that is, call them to see it now as wisdom and wisdom and power, is the very thing that they thought was foolish and offensive. That's what I mean. So yes, the fool has no heart for wisdom. But the only way he actually will get a heart for wisdom is by telling him the truth. In fact, Proverbs says in chapter 15, verse 31, that he who listens to life-giving reproof will become wise. So we do know. I mean, we know, right? When we witness to people, when we preach the gospel to lost people, when we confront the folly of a fool, that something has to happen beyond our capability, but the only way it's going to happen is if we actually do what God said to do. And he says, answer that fool's foolishness so that he won't be wise in his own eyes. Because it actually may be the thing that God uses to humble him and move him to a position of dependence, therefore breaking him out of his pride and independence. And I think also, if I could, just as was emphasized this morning, I do believe that we have to recognize, I think most of us probably our theology of, of uh, even if we have really strong uh, theology of regeneration and progressive sanctification, the very fact that we call it progressive sanctification uh, suggests that they're going from, going from this stage to greater sanctification. They're making progress. Or to use it in terms of Romans 12, right? They're, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Or 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with, with unveiled face are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being changed from glory to glory. That while we would, we really have to be clear that the difference between an unbelieving fool and a believer who may have some remnants of foolishness in their heart, there's a difference there, but that difference isn't so great that an unbeliever can never express foolishness 
and therefore never have foolishness that needs to be addressed. Right? So it's possible that you could have believers that fit verse 5. That they still are conformed in some way to this world and need to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. So we have an obligation to expose the foolishness of what's conforming them to the world. So, so we have to engage in this task sometimes because we don't want, we certainly don't want to leave the unbeliever without the only thing that God will use to bring him to Christ, the life-giving reproof. And we certainly don't want to leave professing believers in a position where they might as well be trusting in themselves rather than in God's Word. So sometimes we may have to turn toward a brother or sister in Christ uh, and say, you know, what you've expressed there is foolishness. And if we're not climbing down into the gutter to make that point, we can be making it wisely and it can be used in a remedial way for God's people. That is to call them away from pride and independence to humility and dependence on God's work in the way of, uh, so, in the language of Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He shall direct your paths. And then it says, be not wise in your own eyes. Right? Because that's the, the gap. is, And I should put it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And a lot of times what we have to do as shepherds is actually answer the foolishness that is being proposed by a system that is contrary to God and is still affecting God's people. We have to move to to speak to that in a way that exposes the foolishness of it. In fact, I mean, I think if I if I can use Proverbs' uh, picture of a child, right? What's bound in the heart of a child? Foolishness. And what what gets foolishness out of a child? The rod and the reproof. Now, I'm not recommending you start going around spanking church members, all right? But here's the point of analogy, right? So let's, and the, and the Bible does this, right? The new birth, and then you're growing to maturity. And in fact, Hebrews 5 would say that, that the pathway from immaturity to maturity is actually tied to spiritual digestion. Instead of being able to have meat, you need milk still. And also developed ethical discernment. You're not skillful in the word of righteousness and have not had your senses trained to discern between good and evil. So it's very, very likely, given what we see in the Scriptures, that a young, or let me just put it this way, an immature Christian might actually be articulating foolishness. And a part of helping them grow past that 
is actually showing them that. Teaching them that that's foolish. It's not consistent with God's truth. It's not what God wants us to be and to think and to do as believers. And so we would help them move from foolishness to wisdom by means of reproof. But not reproof that is of the same character of their foolishness. That's verse 4. It would be reproof that's aimed at correcting their foolishness so that they can grow and, and I think we can do that and ought to do that. And it doesn't have to suck us into lengthy and unprofitable quarrels with fools, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that if we're carefully gauging the person in the situation, right? Because I do think that that's a part of it, because we, we want to set this inside of a biblical context, and we have Jesus saying, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right? So we are to make some judgments where we look at it and we say, you know what? I'm just, I'm not even going to engage in this because Jesus warned me about situations like this. So I'm not going to hop in with the dogs and the hogs. I'm not doing it. And I'm not doing it out of obedience to Jesus, right? So sometimes we, we would, we would gauge it and say it's not wise to actually, uh, if I could put it this way, Right to you know to meddle in a quarrel that's not our own is like grabbing a dog by the ears. That's the picture the proverb says. So there are times where we'd go, nope, I don't think that's right. I'm not I'm not going to do that. So if we're carefully trying to gauge it, then we we would keep ourselves from you know Dr. McCune used to always talk about you know a lion and a skunk getting a fight. The lion's going to win, but he's going to come away stinking, right? You know. So there are times where you're going. I really don't want to smell like a skunk for the rest of my day. I'm just, it's not, it's just not. And I, I, can, I, can I tell you the infallible answer as to know when? No. But you're supposed to be cultivating wisdom, so you'd have to size that up, right? You'd have to size that up. But I think also, if we're actually focusing on the foolishness that's at stake here, right? Answer a fool as his folly deserves then you're talking about a very contained point of context. I'm not deciding to take this guy's entire life on right now. I'm addressing the foolishness that has actually presented itself. And I can probably do that a lot easier than I might be inclined to if I limit it to uh, specifically addressing the point and put it, providing a careful, well-targeted critique or a well-placed question, and then disengage and reevaluate. Right? Is, did 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 that uh, did that comment help that person see that what they just did was foolish? Right? I showed that their evidence or their assumptions or their uh, their tactic was wrong in that regard. And the reality is. We have to depend on God for wisdom about the timing and way to deal with fools and their arguments. And is it a time to be silent or is it a time to speak? What's the, what is the real issue that's at stake here? And, and we must address the point or the problem, not direct our words against the person. Right? The goal is to wrestle with what's going on. And I think we should argue, therefore, by means 
of countering their foolishness by means of the truth. We're showing them what's right, but also by showing them the folly of what they've done. So, so here's my point in terms of defending the faith in an age of unbelief, right? We need to recognize that as the world around us becomes increasingly hostile to biblical truth and biblical authority, we're going to find ourselves confronted by the objections of foolish men against God. We must walk wisely for the sake of God's glory and the gospel. We can't do that. That is, we can't walk wisely for the sake of God's glory and the good of the gospel if we drop to their level. Right? If we become like them, we're not honoring God and we're not advancing the gospel. So we can't do that. That's what verse 4 is saying. Verse 5 is saying that I think we must be bold if God's truth is being attacked so that even fools are stopped from marching farther away from God and those who watch will not think the fool has the better argument. Right? So, so at some point, the threat level presented by that foolishness to God's glory and the gospel needs to be considered and it might be necessary to engage his foolish argument to show him that it's foolish so that he won't be wise in his own eyes. Right? And I think the template here in these two verses work for an unbelieving world, but I think they also work with the kinds of foolishness that can still surface in the life of believers in the process of sanctification or the, the threat of temptation. And so we ought to make certain as shepherds that we don't become the fool by acting like the fool. And we work hard to expose the foolishness that's at stake for the sake of truth and wisdom and God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for the, the fact that we do have a full and final revelation of your wisdom in the Word, and so we can, we can stand on it, and we can proclaim it, we can exhort and teach, and help us also to be submissive to it, uh, to, to listen to the life-giving words that come from your Word, either to us directly as we study it, or by means of your people as they communicate it to us. Help us to, to not be fools. And help us not to ignore foolishness because we love you and we love your truth and we want to see others come to worship you in that way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.